Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, on your DAB radio, on your smart speaker, or download the Times Radio app. Coming up on today's episode, is your council going bust? If it hasn't already, it might be about to. We've got Tim Minogue, who does Rotten Boas in Private Eye, amongst others, taking a look at the state of local council finance and why it means that the sort of things you rely on, roads and bins and schools and everything else, might be in trouble if they haven't got any money. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, we kick off with our columnist panel, and today's is a bit confusing. Will the real Matthew please stand up? May I have your attention, please? m with someone called Matthew and someone called Matthew. We're going to have a problem here. On Times Radio. It was worth the wait, wasn't it? Yes. Uh, Matthew yeah. Powers is here. Nice hello, to see hello. Uh, we, yeah, no Manvin Rana, so we've got Matthew Powers. Normally it's Manvin and someone called Matthew, but now we've got Matthew Powers and Matthew Bell. Hello, hello. And also Matthew Chorley, yes. once upon a time. So we should, may, maybe we we just go by surnames, like we're a, a minor public school. <laughs> uh, that's probably the right, um, right way to approach it. Right, uh, let's uh, dive in to Tory Sleaze. There's one thing the Labour Party likes doing, it's talking about Tory Sleaze. Uh, they are promising an Ethics and Integrity Commission. Uh, which would replace ACABA, which is the uh, the watchdog which looks at jobs and uh, so on that um, people get when they leave politics. It will have independent powers to sanction ministers, apparently. Uh, Angela Rayner told Times Radio Breakfast all about it. At the moment, it's in Rishi Sunak's gift. So, for example, if there is wrongdoing, so there was questions about what Rishi Sunak knew about particular wrongdoings when he appointed people as ministers. If there's wrongdoing, he decides whether he's going to investigate it and then he decides whether or not he's going to do anything about it. Mm. And we think that's wrong. We don't think that's the way it should work. So, Paris. It won't happen. (laughs) (laughs) No further questions. Why won't it happen? It won't happen because it takes away from the leadership of a a political party, whether in government or not, the right to take the final decision on whether somebody's sins um, have have been uh, mortal sins or or forgivable sins. And uh, neither Keir Starmer, once he's Prime Minister, if he is, uh, nor any other Prime Minister, uh, wants to give that power to any external body, and they won't. Uh, Bell, um, the slight... Uh, my sort of reading of this is less about what Labour might do in government and more about trying to just keep talking about the status of the Tories yes. right now. Of course, of course, because what you want to do is say, talk about what you will do when you're in power, but in fact the details of that will remain obscure and might never happen. Um, and, and it's the classic thing of you delay dealing with it by saying, well, we'll organise uh, a set-up new committee uh, which will deal with this, and it sounds very good on paper, but in fact nothing uh, will come good of it. But the, the one good thing I did think she said was that she was proposing to uh, ban any ministers from uh, getting involved in lobbying or consultancy for at least five years after leaving office, which would be, I mean, which would be fantastic, uh, because that's, you know, as David Cameron pointed out when he was in office, the big problem that still hasn't been tackled is the lobbying and the, re- the revolving doors culture we have. Um, and, and that's the, the stem of that is that ministers or MPs aren't paid enough to do the job they're doing. So they have to find uh, work elsewhere, which then um, uh, it compromises their integrity. I, I, I agree with that. It does, though, raise the question about Sue Gray um, going fairly swiftly in, in, into, into uh, government, as it were, with, yeah. the, with the Labour Party. Uh, this isn't just a problem with former MPs. It would be a problem with former civil servants, or should be. There's also the implication, uh, Matthew Paris, that 
uh, Keir Starmer can't be trusted to do the right thing himself. You know, the, the, the complaint is that Boris Johnson and uh, Rishi Sunak and so on uh, make the wrong calls, don't order the investigations. That's a, a very interesting... Instead of saying, well, Keir Starmer would do the right yes. thing, yes. is that it acknowledges he also wouldn't do the right yeah. thing, which is why we're going to subcontract it somewhere else. You, you, but you raise, I, I think, a, a, a wider point and a really interesting... Direction in which politics has been going over the last 10 or 15 years. Ministers bringing in laws to tell them what laws they may or may not bring in. I think it started with the, the Tories. Instead of just saying we will give 1.7% of GDP for overseas aid, they tried to bring in, well, they brought in a law um, saying yeah, that, exactly. that they must do it, as though they couldn't be trusted to yeah. keep to their promise, which indeed they couldn't. <laughs> and then they had to repeal <laughs> the law. Even being in law was yes. not enough to... Uh, not enough to do. Um, uh, um, Matthew Bell, uh, to what extent do you think this feels a little bit like just sort of keep kicking the tour? You know, it's, it's, re it's, it's really punching a bruise still going around sort of Tory sleeves like this, isn't it? Of course, yeah, no, absolutely it is. But I mean, but it's an easy, it's an open goal. It's a very easy target uh, to talk about Tory sleeves. Um, and, and there's plenty of it. But I think what's uh, disappointing about Rishi Sunak is that he's not putting enough space between him and, the, and his predecessors, mm. which it was a very sleazy government under Boris. And, you know, and unfortunately, Rishi Sunak was in his cabinet. So he, he knows exactly what it was like. And what he should be doing if he was a stronger leader is saying, I have nothing to do with my predecessors. And, and my Conservative government is completely different. Uh, and he's not doing that, which is uh, it's a big mistake. And I think it'll probably cost him the election as a result. Um, let's talk about uh, Rishi Sunak then, and let, not, this will not turn into a, a total Tory knocking exercise. Uh, in the Spectator today, Matthew, you've written a column uh, with, under the headline "Don't Write Off Rishi," which may well have some listeners spluttering into their um, <laughs> uh, uh, coffee this morning. <laughs> why are we wise not to rush to write, given that what the polls say, even Tory MPs, Tory ministers you speak to privately say, "Oh, it's just all that you know, it's just a, the long wait to." Uh, uh, to doom. Um, why shouldn't we write him off? Well, well, that that column was really written about the subject that every columnist um, has a passionate, uh, sincere inside knowledge of, which is himself. <laughs> and um, I, I have found myself tending to be a bit more supportive towards the Tories as I look towards the next general election. I could look back at the disaster that was Boris Johnson, the catastrophe that, that, that was Liz Truss, the disappointment that was Theresa May. But I'm starting now, uh, as a voter myself, to look forward and, and think, do we want a Labour government? And so I'm finding myself more sympathetic to the Conservatives than I was. And I suspect that... A great many voters, not yet, probably not until the middle of next year, will move the same way in their own minds. The, the question is uh, not, what do you think of Boris Johnson? Uh, did you approve of Tory sleaze? Uh, the question will be, do you want a Labour government? And I think to that, they may give a slightly different answer. And at this point, I'm supposed to say, well, you would say that, you massive Tory, former MP... Of yes, you're going to be. Was it? What's the phrase you used? Rishi Sunak fanboy. That's right. Absolutely. No, I think he's doing a very good job. Though I, 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 I agree with other Matthew yeah. that um, it's time for him to kick over the traces. I understand why, when he became prime minister, the circumstances in which he did, he had to try to bring in people from all sides of the party. But it's desperate now. There's an election coming up quite soon. Um, he's not going to win it unless he does something. I think rather bold, and the bold thing to do would be to design 
design uh, a, a cabinet uh, around his own views and plans rather than around his fears of a group of Tory backbenchers. What do you think, um, Matthew Bell? Should he just go all out? Just, just you know, stop because he's you know he's a slow, sort of steady, safe pair of hands. But that's only got him so far, so far. But it's well, it's not very far. Well, I, I was one of those spectator readers choking on my cornflakes this morning as I read <laughs> Matthew's column because I looked to Matthew Paris as uh, as as the bastion of centrist, sensible conservatism, Christian conservatism as well, I might add, um, which is guided by a strong moral and ethical framework. And I, I felt what Matthew was saying in his column was that fear was driving him to vote against Labour, not to support Rishi Sunak, a fear of a Labour government. And um, it, we only need to look at the record of this Conservative government, see that all the things they've done have been uh, quite opposite to, to ordinary conservative values, which is tax has gone up, immigration is going up. So there's really nothing to fear by changing this government for another one who, I agree, that they're, they're, they're absolutely not impressive at the moment. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about Keir Starmer in a minute. But I think that uh, it, it's it's a bit like the Tories in in um, 97, which is if you if you want the Conservative Party to survive long term, it's almost better for them to lose the next election so they can go off, have a rethink, work out what they stand for, try and get rid of this uh, hideous, toxic far-right wing which has uh, taken over the train set and, and come back fighting four or five years later but with a really sensible... Matthew, what you're suggesting, Matthew Powers, is you're suggesting he should do that now. Yes. Have a, have a clear out of your Suella Bravmans now. Yeah, yes, he could. But, but, but Matthew is, is right. It was fear. Um, it is fear that is driving men into taking a slightly more Tory-sympathetic uh, position. It was fear that drove me into the Conservative Party when I was a student at university. It was fear that kept me in the Conservative Party. I've never liked the Conservative Party. It's a ghastly party. It does <laughs> it does ghastly things. It's a horrible you old, used to work for horrible it. You old worked thing. for Margaret Yes, I did. You stood for election to it. Yes, yes, yeah. and I didn't say that. No. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, are, you, are you in the Conservative Party now? Uh, no, 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 I, le I, I left. I know you left, but you haven't come back. No, no, I've done with being member, a member of a party. No, for me, all through my political life, the driving force has been opposition to uh, collectivism, uh, opposition to government by trade union, opposition to government by the mob, um, opposition to constantly robbing Peter to pay Paul, yeah. all that stuff. And so it's, it, it's fear of that rather than love of anything in the Conservative <laughs> Party that, that, that keeps me sane. Now, Matthew Paris, in your column in The Times at the weekend, uh, you alighted on, you thought that uh, Keir Starmer's got a problem with his voice, that he was a nagger, not a nation builder. And you particularly um, singled out his response to when he encouraged young people to have the confidence to step forward and address a room full of people. And when they stepped forward to address the room full of people and staged a protest, uh, he got a bit ratty. Let's take a listen to Keir Starmer last week. We are on the side of economic growth. Will you just let me please get on right with this? Now. Thank you very much. Stop making turns here. We have already... We, will you just let me finish this and I'll come and talk to you about it? Thank you very much. We need a Green New look, Deal right now. Look, and you keep making my last speech was about this. Will you please... There's lots of people who want to hear this. Please don't drown them out. Please don't drown them out. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Matthew, people will say, don't be so daft. Uh, this doesn't matter. It's about the policies, not about his voice. Oh, 
but that that's never the case, as uh, Mrs. Thatcher understood very well during the 1970s yeah. when she hired a voice coach to make her softer yeah. and lower the the register of her, of her voice. And uh, before any listener thinks this is just um, Paris plugging the tour for the Tories again, I've uh, written about Rishi Sunak's voice too. He's got a sort, especially in the House of Commons, he's got a kind of smarty pants voice, which which people will also find very. Ill- irritating. I, I, I predict that if we get a Prime Minister Starmer, we're going to find that voice more and more getting on our wick. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Bell, does he get on your wick already? Oh, all the time, yeah. I mean, he's very disappointing and underwhelming uh, and unstatesmanlike. He, but, but, but what's reassuring about that is you think, well, at least he's a competent technocrat. I mean, it's the same with Rishi Sunak. I find him unimpressive uh, when he speaks because he tends to resort to populist slogans and catchphrases as against saying anything interesting or intelligent. But uh, no, the problem, I mean, I think Keir Starmer definitely needs some work on his voice. But it's a shame that we write them off because of their voices. If you remember, we did this with Ed Miliband. He had a terrible voice. Uh, and and uh, David Miliband was, had that similar problem. It's it's so important to get the voice right, but there's not much you can do about it, as I know with my own voice. You know, you're just stuck <laughs> with the one you're born with. Well, uh, or... So or you could get a voice coach like James Evans, who's a, voice, a public speaking coach from Venter Coaching. Morning, James. Morning, Matt. Is there, can you do anything about Matthew Bell's voice? <laughs> I'm sure we can sort something out uh, afterwards, Matthew, but uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm not making any guarantees. So what, James, I just want to play, because we've got a couple of clips of Margaret Thatcher pre and post uh, voice coaching. So let's have a listen to them and then you can explain what it is she's been taught to do to change her voice. So this is uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, when she, I think, when she was still a backbench MP. So let's just take a listen to that. Mrs Thatcher, it's always supposed to be a tremendous ordeal, maiden speech, was it for you? Oh, very much so. I've done a good deal of other speaking, but speaking in the House of Commons is quite different. It's a unique experience. Do you think it's more difficult because you are a woman? Uh, No, I didn't notice that. It really is because of of the quality of one's audience and the fact that most of them have had more experience at doing precisely what you are doing. Sounds like the Queen there. Amazing. (laughs) And this is her leaving uh, Downing Street after 11 years in power. Ladies and gentlemen, we're leaving Downing Street for the last time after 11 and a half wonderful years and we're very happy that we leave the United Kingdom in a very, very much better state than when we came here 11 and a half years ago. It's been a tremendous privilege to serve this country as Prime Minister. So, James, what... what I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like two different people. Um, what, what, what would you, in that situation, if you were the voice coach, what have you done, what, what, what have they done there and what's the purpose of doing it? Sure, so... She's brought the pitch down a great deal, obviously. Um, She's slowed down a little bit, um, and there's more of a staccato rhythm to her voice in that second clip. Um, And I think that lends a certain amount of authority to what she's saying, even as she's leaving Downing Street there. And it's interesting that you should select that clip, Matt, because I think that staccato rhythm is something that actually Keir Starmer has latched onto if you listen to him speaking it's we need to unlock opportunity for every child from every background and i think you do actually hear that in his speaking i think for him he's trying to convey a sense of urgency things must change now and i think that that is working for him to a certain extent 
Um, do, do you think he's had a bit of coaching himself, or do you think actually from his time in, in uh, as a barrister and so on that, it, that is that's just part of his 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 personality already? It's it's very hard to say. I'd be very surprised if he hadn't had any help at all, any coaching at all. I'd be very surprised if there were any top tier politicians who hadn't had some coaching or or some help. The risk, Matthew Powis, is that if you start trying to coach someone, do you remember when they tried to get Gordon Brown to smile? Yes. And he yes. just did it at random moments while, <laughs> you know, paying tribute to the wall dead or something. It was a sort of big... It has to be authentic. Yes. And obviously the thing with Margaret, actually, it happened over a period of time, actually, when she wasn't leader, you know, in the, mm. in the Shadow Cabinet. So, so it sort of happened slightly out of, out of the limelight. If Keir Starmer suddenly came out, with a much deeper voice. We think that would be a bit, pecu- bit peculiar. Yes, but uh, control of the larynx is actually easier than control of the face, which really has its own own mind. But the larynx you can control. Uh, we're talking about two rather separate things. One, of course, is accent, because Mrs Thatcher had slightly yeah. softened her upper-class accent. But but the, the other is, is it, it is actually the larynx, yeah. and it's the ability to... Relax your throat a little bit, pause, not be afraid of, of, of pausing, get a little bit of breath into your voice, and anyone can do it. Uh, for, it th- th- there's no physical reason why Mexicans all speak with a sort of nya, nya, Rosita kind of thing. It's just because that's the way they've been taught to speak. They yeah. could speak differently. There we are. Uh, Matthew Bell, I look forward to you being back uh, probably next week with a completely different voice. Well, there's hope for me yet. I like oh, Matthew's oh, voice. No, I do. I, think I it's like nice. it. Yeah, we like it. Uh, Matthew Bell and Matthew Paris there. And of course, you can read Matthew Paris in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is your council going bust. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. You're listening to the Redbox Podcast now. It's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Is your council going bust? 
Well, the chances are, if it hasn't already, and quite a lot have, it soon could be, because local authorities around the country are seeing their incomes shrinking while demand for their services rise. And many are taking drastic action, cutting libraries, leisure centres, bin collections, selling off the family silver. But of course, once that's gone, there's, much left, there's not much left to do but declare bankruptcy. This is a huge story that probably doesn't get the attention it deserves because obviously individual times, it only affects small parts of the country. So today, we want to try and get to the bottom of what's going on. It's a problem right across the country. We'll hear from journalists in Birmingham, Somerset and Woking, three very different local authorities, a big city, a rural area and a town, but all with very similar problems. But first, let's try and work out what's going on across the country. Tim Minogue is a freelance journalist who edits Private Eye's Rotten Boroughs. Morning, Tim. Hello. And Kirsty Weekly is the news editor of the local government chronicle. Hi, Kirsty. Hey. Um, before we get into the, uh, the nitty-gritty, uh, Tim, is this a, just a boring local government story and everyone can switch off, or is this something we should all be worried about? I, I think people would be unwise to switch off because... Um, Correct answer. As you, as you have uh, indicated, um, <clears throat> it may uh, only affect getting the headlines uh, and uh, affect people personally if their own council goes bust. But there are many councils, most councils are in financial difficulty and have been for some time. And uh, even, even if they're not um, declaring themselves bankrupt, they'll... Uh, it, there are very few councils which aren't feeling the pinch and haven't been cutting services. So if if you're concerned about what goes on in your um, your local area, um, you need to pay attention to it. And Kirsty, as the local government chronicle, you must be chronicling these local government problems all the time. What's behind it? Why, uh, why are councils facing such tough financial circumstances now? Um. I think, I think one of the, the big issues is inflation. Um, you know, the cost of delivering day-to-day -day services or capital projects is getting more and more expensive. Um, and councils have got limited limited ways of, of you know, raising additional income. Um, and if they were, you know, even if they were to have um, unlimited flexibility on how much council tax they could raise, which they don't at the moment, um, putting council tax up during a cost-of-living crisis is very unpalatable. No, no councillors get into local government because they want to cut services um, or make those difficult decisions. Um, I think there's, there's, you know, research out almost every every week at the moment saying that there are just there's just not not enough funding to keep things standing still. Um, so councils right across the country are having those really difficult discussions about where you where you make cuts or where you increase prices. And we'll come on to some of the specifics uh, in a moment, Kirsty. But just explain what we mean when a council goes bust. We're going to use some jargon. Is it <laughs> Section One One Four? Yeah. So the Section One One Four is the sort of ish, it's the notice that the um, finance officer would would issue that says that effectively states our council doesn't have enough money to deliver um, to deliver what we need to deliver. Um, it means for that council that they then have to stop any non-essential spending it's a it's a sort of warning light with a big you know that's where you tend to get the the headlines this council's gone bust um and you'd expect that to sort of you know to lead to discussions accelerating with i think the um department for local um the department for leveling up um housing and communities 
is often already in discussion with these councils. It's usually got a good idea of who's who's likely to get close to issuing those statements. They, there's always sort of discussions that are happening about whether to issue it or not. Um, but then the government can step in with additional funding. Um, yeah, but it's sort of when it reaches crisis point. But Tim, yeah. when we talk about a council going bust, obviously if it's a business that goes bust, uh, they pack up and somebody else probably moves into the market and, and delivers the same service. But council can't literally disappear because they've got a certain amount of things that they have to uh, deliver. So what, what yeah. happens in practical terms if your council has gone bust? Uh, well, as Kirsty uh, explained, uh, they are only allowed to... Um, deliver essential services they can't borrow any more money they can uh they can't pay anybody anymore they can't take any stuff stuff like that um the service they will be looking to cut services to the bone uh and so the services that are provided are, are very diminished um and uh, usually government the government will appoint commissioners to come in and run things because the assumption is that the council was the elected councillors aren't uh, sufficiently competent uh, to do it anymore. I, I would just like to make the point, adding to what Kirsty said earlier about uh, why uh, councils are so broke. It's it's not just because of inflation and you can't put a council tax. I mean, uh, councils everywhere have uh, had their grants from central government reduced by about forty percent since uh, 2010, which is when uh, the coalition came into power and imposed austerity. So that, that's, that's where the, um, uh, the problem arises. And um, councils have, for a long, long time, as Kirsty says, have been trying to um, uh, find additional sources of income. And, uh, you know, t 20 years ago, the uh, the craze was for what they call outsourcing, where instead of running the service yourself, you get um, companies uh, such as uh, Capita or, or Crapita, as we call it, um, to come in and, and run the service for you. And uh, the experience of many councils has been that the, those outside companies are much better at uh, making money for their shareholders than providing value. Well, I suppose as they would the... be, because if you've got a pot of money, <laughs> uh, you know, if you, if it costs X amount to, I don't know, run the bins, uh, if you're the council, then you just pay to run the bins. But if you're the company, you pay to run the bins and make some profit on top. So exactly. it ends up costing you more money. In fact, let's just take a this because last week was the Local Government Association's conference. I spoke to the, the chair of the LGA, uh, Sean Davis. He told me about what uh, he saw as being the, the issues in local government clear to say is that in the medium term if the demand for adult social care and looked after children housing and all of the things that councils do if that, if that demand continues at record levels and resources don't keep up then it's inevitable at some point more and more councils will have to raise the flag what's called a, a section 114 notice and that is not through any kind of you know bad decision making or risky investments that's just simply maths <laughs> you know if services are costing more and you're getting less money in then at, at some point money runs out uh, so that's Sean, uh, Sean Davis there. But uh, at the conference last week, Michael Gove, the uh, levelling up uh, secretary who oversees local government now, he was speaking, he suggested money's being wasted. The thing is that I believe very strongly, as indeed does the Minister for Local Government, that when taxpayers are paying for services, uh, they need to have people working that full five-day week. It seems to me... 
that uh, for, every, for every penny that's paid in council tax, uh, we deserve, all of us, to see those who are working in local government uh, working what uh, is a full working week uh, for those who are council taxpayers as well. Kirsty, um, that was Michael Ghost. I think it's in Cambridge where you've got, they've moved to a four-day week in some areas. Um, yes, I think that's, that is just one council that's um, introduced this trial to do a four-day week. Um, I think the, the thing that we should say there is that they, the expectation at that council is that you do your full five days' worth of work across four days. Um, they're the first council that's doing this, but it is something that is being trialled across the private sector. Um, and actually, I think one of the examples is in bins, isn't it? But the whole point is you just make sure you collect all the bins in four days and the idea you might better recruit and retain staff if they get a three-day weekend. Yeah. But yeah, so it's, it's doing all the work. Yeah, I think it's it's too early in the, the trial to really know whether it's it's proving efficient or wasting time. I think there's, there isn't much indication that this, this is something that is spreading yeah. right across local government. Um, but again, like councils are looking to try and do innovative things to attract and attract and retain staff because workforce is a huge issue across local government at the moment. Um, councils are finding it really difficult to recruit enough staff just to do the job, um, which has you know knock-on effects on the ability to provide services um, and also means that they're sometimes having to hire expensive agency staff, which is, you know, having... That makes it even more expensive when you haven't got any money. Yeah, so um, you, you, get, you get stuck in that cycle. Uh, as always happens when we talk about uh, matters related to local government, we get lots of messages coming in. Uh, Tim, there's a good question from uh, Warren. He says, uh, surely if a council goes bankrupt, the first thing that should happen is that all the local councillors are all kicked out and a local election held. Tim? Yeah. <laughs> I don't... I don't... <laughs> I don't see how that would help. I mean, uh, <laughs> we uh, the elections take place on a on a regular basis, and um, and I think um, you know councillors, if they seem to have fa- failed or not delivered, will pay the price at those elections. I, I, I think sort of having r- random elections thrown in whenever there's a crisis uh, wouldn't help. I don't, and I don't and, and so. also, running elections cost money, uh, which probably Indeed. wouldn't help either. So, Tim, uh, what are the particular areas when you're covering? And it's obviously not just financial. You know, there's lots of uh, uh, ethical and um, uh, management issues which you cover in Rotten Boroughs. But when it comes to the finances, what are the councils that you've been keeping an eye on uh, who've either uh, already gone bust or look like they might do? Where, where are you keeping an eye on? Well, uh, I, I, I believe you said you, you, you've you got a, a contributor coming from Birmingham. So um, no doubt he or she will tell you about that. They, they've... Um, uh, uh, lost an awful lot of money on a, uh, an IT contract. Um, and they've also discovered um, a, a time bomb of about um, £760 million, uh, pounds, uh, which has been unpaid over an equal pay uh, settlement that was arrived at about 10 years ago. And uh, they've just discovered that, that they've paid out about a billion uh, settling these pay claims. And they've just discovered there's another three quarters of a billion uh, that they're going to have to find from somewhere, which, I mean, that's these are staggering, staggering uh, sums. Um, uh, another one that hasn't been very much on the radar, I think, for the public at large is um, is um, Warrington in, in Cheshire. They, they've, uh, they made um, disastrous investments in um, solar farms, uh, which um, Thorup in Essex also, they, they've lost vast sums on that. They... Um, they um, 
they invested uh, 32 million pounds in a bank called Redwood Bank. And the latest accounts show that that investment is is now worth just over six million pounds. Wow. Um, uh, Cambridgeshire, which you, you'd think would be a you know fairly safe sort of place, uh, is very much on our radar. They they set up a, um, a ho- their own housing company on the same lines that Croydon did, and uh, Croydon went spectacularly bust because um, they weren't building enough houses to repay the loans, and uh, that's very much the case in in Cambridgeshire as well. And um, we've just got a story this on. week about uh, Hastings, their financial officer um, believes they will have very little choice of them to issue uh, a section 116 and their their, uh, reserves are exhausted and, you know, um, some uh, desperate, unwise investments. I mean, I'd I'd like to make the point about these uh, investments is, you know, where are you going to get your extra money from? Uh, there, there are political restraints on raising council tax. Um, the government isn't has cut um, their contributions enormously. So, you know, when you've sold off your uh, land and so forth, and it's any spare land, you know, you, you're, you're selling off the family silver. They um, they attempt to go into into businesses, whether it's house building, yeah. IT. Um, energy companies several several councils have, have lost a fortune trying to set up energy companies and, and that's um, badly as well yeah you know we, we all um people love to hate property developers but they know what they're doing and you know <laughs> council office council officers that you know do, don't have the expertise for for a lot of these yeah, um, yeah, yeah. businesses and it's all um, poured out of desperation and trying to find ways to, to raise money and plug gaps. Tim, really hmm. good speech to you. Tim Minogue, who edits Private Eyes, Rotten Boas. Also, Kirsty Weekly, thanks for that. News editor at the Local Government Chronicle, uh, giving us a sense of what's going on in the big picture. We're taking a look at local government. Is your council going bust? Lots are. Lots of you, loads of you getting in touch this morning as well. Uh, Warren, who suggested uh, having elections every time a council goes bust. Uh, Tim was explaining that um, that's not very practical. He says, OK, if we can't sack them and have expensive local elections, how about bringing back the stocks so we can throw tomatoes at them? Uh, someone else on the text says, you think MPs are bad? You wouldn't believe the idiocy and vileness of some of the local councils. They continue to baffle officers with the most bizarre cost-causing decisions with almost no scrutiny. Good idea for an item, though, Matt. Thanks so much. Uh, Howie in London says, council admin staff get paid so much money, sometimes more than or equal to the PM. Uh, such as the landlords are in Bristol, says here it's on 250,000. The business are in Croydon, left with a half a million pound package. Uh, lack of uh, accountability at the root of these uh, problems. Well, let's dive in then to uh, some of these uh, local areas. Uh, Jane Haynes is Birmingham Live's politics and people editor and joins us. Hi, Jane. Hi, Matt. Nice to see you. Good, good, um, to, good to have you back with us. And uh, we'll, we'll come to you in a second, the, the big financial problems in a big city. Uh, Daniel Mumby's local democracy reporter for Somerset Live. Hi, Daniel. Good morning. Nice to be here. You're, you're the representative of, of how you can uh, muck up the finances in a rural area. And uh, Emily Cody-Stemp is local democracy reporter for Surrey Live with a particular uh, focus on Woking. Hi, Emily. Good morning. Good to talk to you. Good to have you with us. So what we thought we'd do is have you all together, and I suspect you'll all end up saying, yeah, same thing happened here. So uh, let's start with you, Emily, given that you're the furthest down the road of the going of bust. Uh, what happened in Woking? 
So Woking issued its um, Section 114 notice that we've, we've already sort of briefly talked about um, in June. Um, that's come off the back of kind of years of huge borrowing, really, for um, mostly town centre redevelopment projects and, uh, and and has now come to a head. You know, servicing that kind of debt is obviously a huge um, responsibility for a council. Uh, and, and things that have come up in Woking have been so part of the town centre redevelopment project was um, a Hilton hotel yet to open, it's about three years overdue now. Um, the council was responsible for buying the cutlery in that hotel. Um, so the, the sorts of things that we're seeing, um, you know, ever increasing um, issues that are coming up, warnings from 2019 as part of a peer, peer corporate review that took place then. Um, lots and lots to say about Woking, really. Wow, so that's that's what's happening in Woking. In uh, Birmingham, uh, Jane, what's the, what are the issues there? Oh gosh, how long have you got, Matt? <laughs> I mean, we're in the direst of straits. Um, we now uh, have, I think as, as was touched on just, um, the local council have now discovered they owe £760 million in equal pay claims. But that's a, contin- that's a rolling number is rising by 14 million a month so i think somebody worked it out at 300 pounds a minute um so those claims are going to hit the council hard um on top of that we have to find 100 million pounds to put right um a finance and um it system that was brought in to save money and has been an absolute catastrophe um on top of that the council is also facing um, great focus from the housing ombudsman um, over the state of its own council houses. It's one of the biggest uh, biggest social landlords um, in the country. It's got 61,000 properties, um, but a huge number of them don't even meet decent home standards. So it's got to upgrade those. It's got this bill for sorting out its own IT and finance system. And on top of that, it looks as if it didn't learn the lessons from 2012 when it had to pay out about £1.1 billion in equal pay and has continued to have discriminatory pay practices um, that now is landing it with with yet more more bills, more claims from mostly women um, saying that they're being paid unfairly compared to male counterparts in, in comparative roles. So... It's absolutely dire here. Um, Last time we spoke, there'd just been massive political turmoil. I don't know if you recall, but the council leader was ousted essentially by the Labour Party um, and a new leader is in place um, who was also part of that cabinet for for the last sort of decade. Um, So if it can go wrong, it has gone wrong in Birmingham. Um, And we've not declared a Section 114 notice yet, but we've all but done so. There's a spending freeze, um, a recruitment freeze. Department of Leveling Up is is on board and is in. Uh, External consultants are in. Everything's being thrown at trying to work out how to recover this huge crisis. But being on the verge of bankruptcy, I think that's absolutely fair. That yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be amazed if the government don't intervene and take over Birmingham. Well, Jane, you mentioned there that the Labour Party nationally sort of stepped in and, and ousted the last leader. Uh, Keir Starmer's been defending that. Uh, he was on BBC Radio West Midlands. Let's take a listen. 
The new leader of the council, um, John Cotton, has obviously now acted quickly and decisively uh, to get on top of that situation. And, and I think he's being open and transparent with two reviews and a judge-led um, inquiry. I mean, in the end, it comes back to the, you know, the, the, the central funding um, of the council. But I'm glad that we've got a, a new leader now who's, who's rolled up his sleeve and is getting on with this. So that's uh, Keir Starmer uh, saying that he's getting on with it, but it's going to be hard to fix all that, isn't it, Jane? I'll tell you what, let's bring in Daniel then. So Daniel Mumby uh, from Somerset Live. I think, Daniel, the last time you were on, we were, we were celebrating the birth of Somerset Council, a brand new, shiny, unitary authority. Out went the county council, out went the district councils. Uh, and it's, but it's, it's had a, a slightly difficult birth. It's already facing financial problems. Yeah, it should be pointed out that this is not the first time that Somerset's been in big financial difficulties. We skated close to... Section 114 territory around five years ago with £28 million worth being cut from local services. And that decision was really the impetus behind the push towards unitary of let's get rid of a whole tier of local government, do everything in-house, it'll be much cheaper with just one chief executive. And to a certain extent, that's paid off because they've got all of the easy savings out of the way. But now we are facing a £42 million budget gap by this time next year, um, which is being partially driven by inflation but also by the growing demand for adult social care. Somerset has a rapidly aging population. There is a significant proportion who are over the age of 65, and it is increasingly difficult to recruit social care professionals because we don't have a university, so it's very difficult to train people up. Lots of Somerset is rural and isolated with very limited infrastructure, so it's hard to attract young professionals to move here. And on top of that, we've got growing pressures on the special needs budget within schools and the push-pull between the schools and the councils of who's going to pay for this care package, who's going to look after this this child who needs a wheelchair. And the pressures on those two things are driving money away from other frontline services, such as you know fixing broken roads, ensuring that footpaths can stay open. And it's putting huge pressure on the new unitary authority because, like I say, all of the easy money that's been siphoned off from duplicating services that's all gone, and they're effectively having to start from scratch with less than 12 months to figure it all out. And uh, the interesting thing is, we've we've heard that the, the government started with the coalition has continued since. The amount of direct uh, funding from uh, Whitehall has gone down massively. And yet we still get these sort of like little nitpicky bits of money, you know, whether it's all oh, we've got a pothole fund. Last week we had a minister on talking about a, a, a chewing gum task force fund. It was like £20,000 per council to go around squirting up chewing gum so they're not sort of addressing the big issues but they're you know mucking about with the with the small ones is that a fair summary do you think jane oh absolutely i mean birmingham's lost a billion pounds over the last uh, through austerity um it's it's workforce has been more than halved um and yet we're we're left scrapping between ourselves um, for pots of money to do um, very ring-fenced, very specific tasks. Um, when uh, Daniel rightly pointed out, the pressures from adult social care, from children's services are incredibly demanding right now. Uh, demand is soaring in Birmingham. Uh, it's one of the, you know, it's got some of the most deprived um, neighbourhoods in the country. Um, it's a very unequal city you know, demand for every public service is incredibly high at a time when resources are at uh, a very low uh, and the cost of living impact is, is huge. Yeah, yeah. So add, add on top a, a, a bill that 
some would argue is of the council's own making um, around equal pay um, and this catastrophe around its IT infrastructure. Again, people will argue of the council's own making. Um, it, it all adds up to a real um, d disastrous mix that will impact every single resident in Birmingham. And that's the that's the sad and catastrophic reality. You know, budgets will have to be cut promises that have been made will have to be reneged on assets that the council has owned for centuries may well be sold off as part of this that's what glasgow city council have just done when faced with an equally big yeah. uh, pay bill so um you know the future is not looking great um and for, for residents yeah, yeah. um and it's a mess. And just finally, Emily, in in uh, Woking, having triggered this this section one more for what what's the reality for people in Woking? Are they seeing services that used to be there stop? Yeah, I mean that that will be coming down the line. Absolutely, I think one of the things to say about Woking is we are looking at a you know a borough level council, so it's not um, got that adult social care education responsibility and things. But but nonetheless, the residents at the moment are being asked by the council. You know, which services do you use the most? Can you rank your top three services out of all of the ones that we provide? So, you know, residents are after being look at things like parks, play areas, toilets, leisure centres. You know, how would you be willing to pay more for any of these? Um, which are your top, you know, your priorities that we need to protect? So that's part of the consultation that's going on at the moment in, in Woking. Um, and it does kind of bring it home. Obviously, yeah. the, you know, the statutory services that the councils have to provide will continue. So that council has responsibility for housing, planning, the bin collections that will carry on. But we are nonetheless looking at, um, you know, some quite what could be quite drastic cuts to yeah. those discretionary services as it tries to kind of shrink down that, the size of the council operation, really. Yeah, absolutely. Just because they're discretionary doesn't mean people don't rely on them. Um, really appreciate your time today. Sorry, sorry, it's also such a gloomy uh, conversation, but Jane Haynes, Birmingham Live's people, uh, politics and people editor, Daniel Mumby, local de democracy reporter for Somerset Live, and Emily Cody-Stemp, local democracy reporter for Surrey Live. Thanks very much for joining us and taking us through And loads and loads and loads of you getting in touch. Turns out you're all very cross with your local councils. And that's all we've got time for on today's episode of the podcast. Do get in touch if your council's in trouble. We'd like to hear from you. You can email me, Matt, at times. Radio. Catch me weekdays from 10 on Times Radio. But for now, for me, Matt Cholly is goodbye. <laughs>